Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us for The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, a weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and put into practice. I'm Gwen DeSelm, and it is my privilege to be your host for our time together today. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry and was the founding senior pastor of a church called Fellowship in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Currently, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering help and hope to everyday pastors through coaching and other resources. You can find out more about us at davedeselmministries.org. In various prophetic passages in the Bible, we encounter the idea of a seven-year period of time that's often been called the Great Tribulation. It's the climactic era of history when the church will be raptured, God's final judgments will be poured out, and Jesus will come again. It's these seven years that are really the heart of the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, Scripture tells us that this seven-year period will be kicked off by the arrival of a key figure onto the world scene, and that's who Dave's going to be talking about in this episode. So let's join him now for anticipating the Antichrist. We're enmeshed in a study of this wonderful book, and uh, what we've discovered, though we move through the first six chapters in order, is that now we have to start bouncing around a bit. More than that, we're going to have to also start moving into some other prophetic passages of Scripture in order to make sure we don't lose our ball in the weeds, if you will. Before we look at the book of Revelation, though, I'd like you to go back to the book of 1 Thessalonians, all right? Because we're going to kind of get a running start into it from 1 Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were inhabitants of the Greek city of Thessalonica. A little over 1,900 years ago, the Apostle Paul founded a church there in northern Greece in Thessalonica. And it's here we need to drop our spiritual anchors here before we go to Revelation chapter 13. As with all of Paul's letters, he wrote to real believers who lived in time and space. Having started a church there and tried to get getting them grounded, he would move on to other churches. Then he would write back to them. Often his letters were prompted by questions they had, problems they were facing, or issues that he just wanted to clarify further. Such was the case in 1 Thessalonians. He writes this letter to encourage and to admonish these young believers and also to instruct them. In chapter 4 of this first letter to them, and in verse 13, he gives them some point of instruction about a wonderful event that's yet to come, which we're going to talk about again in this series, the rapture of the church, the coming of Jesus Christ, 4.13 of 1 Thessalonians. Do you have it? Take a look. Brothers, he says, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. We know that's a euphemism for death or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or died in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. And after that, look at this. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. 
He goes on to talk a bit more about this wonderful event in chapter 5. But what he thought was going to be a word of instruction to them ended up becoming words of confusion. And Paul got word back to him that that which he thought, and this is a wonderful event, and I don't have the time to talk to you about it in detail. We'll do that in future weeks. called the rapture of the church. When, when we who are still alive here will be star Trekked, we'll be star Trekked, you know, up to meet Jesus in midair, in the twinkling of an eye. And it's a wonderful, wonderful truth of Scripture that we see in this thing here. But they begin to have problems, and they begin to wonder, have we missed it? Have we missed this? And so Paul fired off a second letter to them to correct this uh, sense of fear they had that we've missed the thing. We've missed it. That is the heart of 2 Thessalonians. And now turn over a page to that letter. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, there's the rapture, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us that the day of the Lord has already come. Pause there. Paul faced a real threat in that day of cultists, if you can believe it. Here in the early years of the church, already there were false teachers that would dog his steps. They go into the churches and he began to try to pervert the gospel. They'd twist his words. They'd try to pull away these young believers. And so Paul was just driven crazy by these heresies that would keep on cropping up there. And apparently that's what was happening here. The issue was being spread, if you look at the, carefully at the verse, um, in verse 2, in three ways. By prophecy, apparently someone had a word from the Lord. And that word was, Jesus has come back, the rapture has occurred, and we've missed it. God told me that. Secondly, he says, by report. What's that mean? Well, you know how that goes in the church. Somebody hears from somebody else, and they hear from somebody else. Before you know it, we all know it's true, because I heard it from... He said, that filtered through the church. And third, notice what it says, by letter from us. Apparently, there were some forged documents going around, purportedly written by Paul. Paul says, you got to know something here. Wait a minute. That's not true. Verses 3 and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, now watch now. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul says, I can tell you why you've not missed the rapture. Two things haven't happened yet. One, we've not seen the rebellion. The falling away, literally, it means. And this is more than simply the general spirit of uh, Christians falling away, which has happened down to the years. The definite article, the, there says, there is going to be a specific falling away time, a massive falling away. That hasn't happened yet. And the second thing he says that hasn't happened yet is we've not yet seen, notice what it says, this man of lawlessness. He's not hit the scene yet. All right? Other translations render, you may have before you the man of sin, or you may have the son of destruction. This individual services in multiple books in the Bible. In Daniel, he's called the little horn. In Matthew, he's called the abomination. As we'll see momentarily in Revelation, he's called the beast. 
Perhaps the most familiar term, though, to all of us is the term the Antichrist. Now, John writes of this character in his first of three little postcards at the end of the Bible. You do know, Roach, that John wrote five books in the New Testament. The fourth gospel, with which you're most familiar, the book of Revelation, but then three little postcards at the end of the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And you see by way of the side screens in 1st John 2, look what he says here. Dear children, this is the last hour. As you've heard the Antichrist, that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. We've already seen some false teachers. This is how we know it's the last hour. Notice the word the Antichrist. There is yet one coming who's a consummate false teacher. These texts all seem to say, and, and, and it's my opinion, that before we're raptured, there will appear on this earth this being, this false messiah, this satanic duplicate. The word anti, interestingly enough, has two meanings. One, it means against. He's against Christ. Anti also means, in the Greek, in place of. So he's the one who will be against Christ, but he'll also be the one that people will embrace in place of Christ. Reading on here in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, he will oppose, will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Again, this squares with Jesus' words in Matthew 24. Remember we said this a few weeks back. So when you see us standing in the holy place, the abomination, that's Jesus' term for this individual, that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, all right? Same thing Jesus talks about. He will be in the holy place, that is the temple. Back to Daniel himself, again using the side screens. In the middle of this last seven-year period, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And the wing of the temple is set up an abomination that causes desolation, that is an idol, until the end that his decree is poured out upon him. So we have this individual setting up an idol of himself, demanding to be worshipped, which triggers a question. There's no temple. There's no temple right now in Jerusalem. How does this happen? Well, 927a of Daniel, right before this verse, look what it says. He will confirm a covenant with many, that's Israel, for one seven-year length of time. In the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to the sacrifice. So let's see now how this looks. We know that that seven-year period of time, according to these texts, is going to really have two distinct parts. There's the first three and a half and the second three and a half uh, year period of time. According to these texts, putting it all together, this will be kicked off by Antichrist making a covenant specifically with Israel. We'll talk about that momentarily. Halfway through that, having given them capacity to have a temple, he will now set himself up an idol in the midst of that temple and determine that he will be worshipped not only by the Jews, but by all the world. Now in verses 5 to 8, we're going to get to Revelation in just a minute. Still in 2 Thessalonians. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Now, this has to do with that which is holding back this Antichrist. What's holding him back? The Thessalonians apparently knew. He said, you know what's holding him back. We don't. And this is one of the toughest passages in prophetic scripture. 
What is holding him back? Why hasn't he come yet? There are multiple theories that are held by good and godly people. Here are just a few of them. Some insist it's God who's holding him back. God's holding him back. And certainly a sovereign God is involved in all that I understand. Others suggest it's Michael the archangel. He's kind of the defender of Israel, that Michael is holding him back. Others, especially if they uh, subscribe to a pre-tribulation rapture view, and if that's the first you've heard that term, don't let it throw you, they, they suggest that the church is holding him back. Therefore, when the church is raptured, then he's free to come. Again, I'll talk to you about that in future weeks. Don't get lost there. I'll give you my best shot. My best shot is that what's holding him back, and this is the most, really the most historic view, what's holding him back is the principle of law and order, that is government that works. Paul himself said that in the book of Romans, that God has given us government to reward good and punish evil so the society can function. In his own days, you know, Paul himself was saved multiple times since he was a Roman citizen from mob rule by solid government intervention. I think the apostles seeing a day approach when government restraints will collapse, when we will see rioting in the streets, when we'll see international terrorism, when we'll see ethnic cleansing, when we'll see that really human government can't stop the chaos. The whole world, including Israel, would readily embrace anybody that could stop the chaos, stop the bombings, stop the terrorism, stop the ethnic cleansing, what if in the midst of our helplessness there arose someone with the charisma, the clout, and the charisma who could bring law and order, who could bring peace and prosperity? What if Israel found someone who could secure their borders? What if Israel found someone who would recognize, the, recognize them as a legitimate country? What if Israel found someone who said, besides that, I'm going to work it out politically that you can rebuild your temple? In the midst of the chaos, it appears that this person will arise. Let me ask you, is there any historic precedent for that theory? Any time in history have we seen a leader arise out of chaos? And to you who really are into history, how about pre-Napoleonic France? France is in such a state of chaos, the people are suffering, and Napoleon rises. How about Nazi Germany? After all the difficult reparations from World War I, Germans were uh, just torn up economically. German pride was shattered, and there arose an individual who promised to rebuild it all, right? You wonder, how did Hitler ever come to power? He promised the moon. He promised the moon, and they were so messed up. They embraced him. Oh, the fact that human rights are lost? The fact that a few Jews die or initially just lost their property, you turn a blind eye to that because after all now we've got our leader. So to net it out for you, it would appear that in the last days, law and order will further and further break down. But instead of the world turning to Jesus Christ, they will turn to a human substitute. The nation of Israel will especially be enamored with this person apparently. Like I said, he'll secure their borders, he'll rebuild their temple. This is the covenant that is spoken of here. What's difficult is there are so many treaties made nowadays with Israel, we don't really know for sure when it's the covenant, which makes it tough to know when this time really starts. 
During this time, there will be the rebellion, if you will, or the apostasy period. And you can kind of see that coming now into a period of apostasy here. What's going to happen here? Well, again, the theories are a little bit difficult. Some see this falling away that Paul alluded to as Israel, as a corporate nation, embracing an antichrist rather than Jesus Christ. And it really has to do with a period of falling away of the Jews from any last vestige of national desire to serve the living God. Others believe that this is the falling away of nominal Christians. The Christians who've been playing fast and loose, Christians who are lukewarm at best, that seeing the difficulty and seeing the wonder of this new leader, it'll quickly become apparent where their allegiance really lies, and it's not with Jesus Christ, it's with Antichrist. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will be back to continue his message in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take just a moment to rate, review, and subscribe, and then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Dave DeSalm Ministries is here to resource everyday pastors as they seek to equip everyday people to become everyday disciples. And one of the primary ways that we do that is through coaching. In the coaching relationship, pastors and leaders have the opportunity to receive individualized, practical guidance from Dave on issues that they're facing in life and ministry. These one-on-one sessions offer a safe place to discuss some of the unique challenges that you're facing with someone who's a bit further down the road of ministry. If you'd like to learn more about coaching, go to davedeselmministries.org or email us at info at davedeselmministries.org. Now here's Dave with the rest of today's teaching. Having said all this, now let's leave Thessalonians and now let's go to chapter 13 of Revelation, okay? The reason why we're jumping here is because that while John's visions were consecutive, that which he reported wasn't necessarily consecutive of events. Revelation is filled with flashbacks. It's filled with... Uh, Uh, carryovers of former things. For example, chapter 12, which we'll study in a few weeks, uh, is a kind of big parenthesis. Chapter 12 talks about this incredible spiritual battle between good and evil, God and Satan, that has been going on down through the ages. And it's like John gives us a big parenthesis in chapter 12, which we'll be studying in a few weeks, okay? But in order for us to kind of keep going with consecutive thinking to some extent, we're jumping here to chapter 13, okay? Revelation chapter 13. And I thought we'd do well just to move through this thing verse by verse, okay? Except verse 1 is the back end of chapter 12, but I want to read it to you anyway. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. It's readily apparent who the dragon is. This is Satan himself, and this is the last part of chapter 12, which is basically the story of good and evil, God and Satan. So we've left Satan here standing down through the ages on the shore of the sea, all right? Best uh, estimation of what the sea says, because you look at the second part of the verse, I saw a beast come out of the sea. Revelation 17, 15 would seem to say that the sea seems to be the confusion of the nations. Now this confusion of the nations, Satan is now waiting for his ultimate weapon. He's standing on the shore, and out of this confusion, now there arises this beast. What's it say about him? I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. 
and on each head a blasphemous name. Again, we could spend a lot of time with the symbolism. Suffice to say this, in the Bible, horns have to do with military power. Crowns with political power. The numbers 7 and 10 seem to speak of fullness or completeness. So looking at that, horns, military power. Crowns political power. So here's the first observation. This individual will be a world-class political and military dictator. The fact that John refers to this individual as a beast does not speak of his grotesque appearance. It speaks of his power. Don't think that the one who's going to come is going to be some grotesque figure, some monster. This is apocalyptic literature, highly symbolic. Rather, the fact is, this person will most likely have the charm or charisma of, say, a John Kennedy, the intelligence of an Albert Einstein, maybe the moral uh, excellence of Mahatma Gandhi, the military ability of Alexander the Great. There were some who would play out the ten horns and seven heads uh, going back to some of Daniel's other monsters back in the book of Daniel, and you could really, that, that could work. I'm not going to spend time with that because there are other kingdoms that have arisen, and you can play with Daniel Revelation on your own. But let's continue on. Verse 2, it says, The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and the mouth like that of a lion. Call it this, he will be extraordinarily powerful. Again, there's some parallelism here in these animals that goes back to some of Daniel's dreams. I'd probably understand it this way. The length, the, the, the leader that is, will have the stealth of a leopard, the brute strength of a bear, and the intimidating power of a lion, which works. The point is he'll be incredibly powerful, very powerful. And the reason why is, number three, he'll be energized by Satan. It says here, the dragon gave the beast his power to the throne and great authority. Apparently the dragon, the evil one, will both empower and enable this beastly leader. Now the next point has confused biblical scholars for years. Verse, uh, continuing on in verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. It's a tough verse. There are some who take this very literally. And what they say is, some scholars would say, this leader will arise to international notoriety by virtue of his amazing, miraculous recovery from a fatal wound, perhaps an assassination attempt. And uh, lest you think that's far-fetched, there are many of us in this room who are old enough to remember back November 23, 1963. And you saw, especially if you saw the, the Pruda film, you saw President John F. Kennedy's head explode in pink foam. What if that afternoon John F. Kennedy would walk out of Parkland Memorial Hospital without a scratch? Think that would get the world's attention? You look at this and think, is it, is it literal? Others see this as perhaps saying, this will be a recovery of one of the old empires of old that seemed to have been dead. This old empire has come back. There are still others that say this person would seem to have been dead politically. They were dead politically, but they came back. Again, we don't know for sure. In any event, he'll be taken with uh, great seriousness, and the world will be enamored by him. Number five, 
He will seek to be worshipped and blaspheme God. We've talked about that already, verses 5 and 6. The beast was given mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. There's three and a half years. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place in those who live in heaven. Which leads to the next point. He will persecute the people of God. Verses 7 to 10. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who is in the air, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he'll be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Initially, it would appear that, I talked about the worship coming halfway through this, this time, and when those refuse to worship, this will bring in a period of time, technically, this time is called the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation really isn't the whole seven years. It kicks in when worship is demanded. Now, holding a finger here, to prepare to close, let's run back once more to Matthew 24 and see if Jesus' words square with this. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15. See if this all squares. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of his house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. And pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will... Verse 21 is very important. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Jesus is saying there, especially there in the environs of Jerusalem, right where the demand is made to worship, it is going to be very difficult. And the reason why God is doing this is because now it's choice time. Who are you going with? Who are you going with? Most of you know that Israel at this time uh, isn't even a religious nation anymore. It's very nominal. You are a Jew nationalistically, not religiously. And this is God's last-ditch effort to bring prophecy to bear and to somehow call out any who are willing. They didn't do it through blessing. Now it'll be during persecution. We know this persecution that will also spread out through the rest of the earth, but Jesus is specifically talking about this. Now look at verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And that's what we don't know. When, how long will it be? We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. And people say, well, I know when it's going to happen. We don't know. We aren't given any more, any more clues as to when that's going to happen. Uh, skipping ahead uh, to verse 29, same chapter. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will get, not give us light. This is the sign that we talked about. This is how we'll know that this being cut short. The moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from the sky. There's going to be some great cosmic sign the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, verse 30, 
The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. The darkness will brilliantly be lit by Jesus there in the heavens. Now watch what he'll do. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And it seems to me, as I put it together, the church is raptured off the earth this time, but then comes the official day of the Lord, and now come the rest of the horrific judgments on the earth. And uh, we'll be talking about those judgments uh, yet to come in the book of Revelation. Okay? That's my best shot. Okay? That's my best shot at it. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the second half of Revelation 13 because there's another beast that comes up. And the second beast, who many of you know of, is called the false prophet. And he will start talking about the sign of the beast, 666, not being able to buy or sell without the sign. And we'll try to address that next week. Before we close, here are three points of application real quick. Here's the first. The deception will be powerful. Don't be fooled. Verse 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, those who don't have the mark of the lamb. I mean, that's pretty cut and dried. Specifically here, I really want to talk to some of you who are still playing fast and loose with Christ. And maybe you've been coming to church, but you know deep down your heart, you're, you're lukewarm at best. At worst, you're just trying to fool everybody. You do not know for certain that you've ever embraced Christ as Savior. Your life has no sign of newness of life. You don't evidence in any way the fact that you've truly been forgiven and you're born again. And you've got to understand something. When this person arises, he's going to sweep so many up in his net. And I just got to tell you, unless you're marked by Jesus Christ, you will be fooled. And if you think, uh, I'm trying to spread a little bit of fear to get you saved, I'll take that. I mean, maybe it's high time you had a little bit of fear. This is a scary day to not be a Christian. Okay? Because the deception is going to be so overwhelming. So overwhelming. Number two, the challenge will be great. Don't be naive. In verse 7, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. I don't know how you can read that, friends. Um, that's... That's frank. Verse 10a, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he'll go. Some will go into captivity. And the second part of verse 10, if he needs to be killed with the sword, he's going to be killed. I wish I, could, I wish I could tell you that it doesn't say that, but it does. And so I think what we need to understand is that Jesus and Paul and John say, now understand, for Christians down through the ages, there have been times when they had to dare to stand tall, even in the midst of tough persecution. And I don't, already we know Christians who are dying around the world for their faith. And I just, I'm preaching against naivete. I'm preaching against those who say, I'll never face anything like this. I'll never face anything like this. Tell that to the Christians in Sudan. They'll die today by the hundreds. Number three, the victory will be sure. Don't be intimidated. The victory will be sure. 10B, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. 
We'll talk about that sure victory to come. We know that this leader is going to be destroyed by Jesus. We know that his season is going to be short at best. As we'll, as we'll study in Revelation 12, he knows that his time is short, and it is short. Hey friends, Pastor Dave here. I simply want to affirm you for taking the time and making the effort to wade through this very challenging chapter in Scripture. Indeed, Revelation 13 is one of the most powerful and puzzling pieces of Scripture. Yet it sends a very clear message to us. Though difficult times will come, God's people will prevail. That being the case, my prayer for you is that through all of this, faith will arise and not fear. So let me pray for you toward that end. Lord, we recognize that we're given the promise that we'll be blessed if we study this book. And indeed we have been and will be. But I pray, Lord, that during this challenging part of the book, we would recognize the fact that in the end, God's people win because God's Son rules. May indeed faith arise and hope flourish in my friends. In these days, both now and in the future, I ask this in the name of Jesus himself. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSalm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.